Welcome to episode 459 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Grace Winburn. Michael Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our David Cronenberg series with 1986's The Fly. And I can promise you that none of us will morph into a fly over the course of this episode. I don't know, man. Don't don't make promises you can't keep. Is it a full moon? Yeah. Grace seems to have some like weird, weird, <laughs> weird machinery behind her. So she might be teleporting halfway through this. What do I have? <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know. It's for for half of our listeners. It's an audio medium, so we can just you know let them believe. I'll pull back the curtain and reveal. <laughs> oh my gosh! Did you see that? Um, all right, we're gonna kick this off uh, with uh, a string of new releases. A set of four short films that Wes Anderson wrote. Well, kind of wrote, adapted. I'd say adapted and directed. Um, he adapted four Roll Doll short stories. Um, the the most prominent one that's about 40 minutes long is The Wonder- Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which stars Benedict Cumberbatch, among others. Um, and then there are three 15-minute or so long shorts that f- follow that called The Swan, Rat Catcher, and Poison. Um, Michael, I figure we can just kind of roll through this in order, um, if that works for you. Um, what is the order? I remember Henry Sugar was first. It's Henry Sugar, The Swan, uh, Rat Catcher, and Poison. Okay, that's the order I watched them in. I just wasn't sure. I didn't watch. I didn't like stay up till midnight to watch each one as it dropped. So no, and it was kind of weird. I'm surprised. You know, I don't. I wouldn't. I don't love it, but I also. I I, I would have appreciated them putting them all like as if it was a TV show. Like in yeah, like I in don't a know playlist. why they didn't sequence them that way. Yeah, because I'm like I would have just they're... honestly would like to go through them that way instead of individually. Yeah, because they had that. Um, like Guillermo del Toro did that Cabinet of Curiosities series, where he had like each director do a different one and that was like a series i don't know that's weird yeah. um but yeah so the first one the wonderful story of henry sugar uh it stars benedict cumberbatch um and they're all kind of like the the actors in this are all kind of flowing through all of them so you have benedict cumberbatch yeah, it's like a theater troupe almost yeah so you have benedict cumberbatch you have ray fines who also is playing roald doll through the four stories um dev patel ben kingsley and uh, Richard Ayoade are probably the mo- like most well-known people among the the cast. Um, but the Henry Sugar uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, she plays the title character who is a who is a very rich man who then learns uh, from this guru how to see without using his eyes, and he in, in goes sets out to use those skills to cheat at gambling. Um, That's what the like uh, like logline is for this movie, but it takes some turns getting there. Like there's like three stories nested within each other. And I don't know. I remember like hitting play on this and they open up with the, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch batch as the rich guy. And, um, then it takes like 20 minutes for it to wrap back around to him. Yeah. It does. It, it, it takes this giant detour with like Ben Kingsley and Dev Patel and Richard Iowati. Um, but I, I like it's fu- like it's funny. This is forty minutes long. I can't imagine if like any of these were like a full film because, and I say this with love, all of these are the most Wes Anderson things of the all most, time. Like, the absolute like most. he has peaked in terms of Wes Anderson. <laughs> we think I keep saying that, yeah. and then he comes out with something new. <laughs> That's true. Um, 
what did you think of this? I I'll, I'll I'll preface and say I'm a big fan of all four of them. Um, I really like this one though. I think the as the longest one, it, it like fills up its runtime. Yeah, I thought this one was the best. It was also the first I watched, which may have affected it because like all of them are doing basically the same thing, which is that um, they're reading aloud the short story. I imagine an edited version of the short story, else it might not have worked. Um, and it's like almost like a book on tape, like an audiobook, except that you see the characters doing stuff on screen. And like when a character is narrating, they're looking at you. But then if they say something to another character, they'll look at another character to say it. And then as they're doing this, it's almost like a stage where with like the scenery like being like shifted, like um, as they're walking through doors and stuff. Um, it's most impressive so, like, in uh, uh, the Swan. Like the like the set design yeah, of that with the one. Yeah, the hedgerow mm-hmm. that they're walking around. Yeah, but uh, Henry Sugar, watching that, it's like all new. Like I hit, like when I started watching it, I didn't really understand that this was going to be like a stage conceit because it opens up with Roald Dahl in his like writing shed, and you have like Ray Fiennes talking to you as Roald Dahl, and then he starts narrating the story, and then you see like what these are going to be, and like I didn't realize that all of them were going to be this way. Um, until I watched the other ones. And so I think that like, in terms of dazzle factor, Henry sugar had it for me. Cause it's got like the most sprawling story. And it also is the first one that like really wows you with that, that technique that like, uh, Wes Anderson is really burrowing into here, which is like the, the kind of staginess, the like treating everything like it's a play, which like, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, but like, it's, like starting with at least Moonrise Kingdom, like that's been a major preoccupation of his, like just growing throughout. Rushmore, yeah, even. yeah, Rushmore, I mean, you're right. Rushmore, well, this, yeah. but this, and this feels like a much more complete version of that compared to Asteroid City, which is like has the play story and the, in you know the actual story going on in like two different like places. Right. Yeah, because Asteroid City, the like when you're watching the story, it doesn't look like a play until they like cut out to like the backstage whereas this whole thing looks like a play but like the most elaborate play possible yeah um and that's what i was thinking like while watching this is just this this feels like a very complete version of what he's been trying to do honestly with a few films now even like french french dispatch kind of has that like blockedness to it where it's supposed to feel like a play at times right and even like the nested stories where people are talking like um there's that really lengthy part of the french dispatch where it's like the the tv interview that cuts to the like uh the long like siege with the like um like the may 68 student protests and stuff like that feels that that is very flat and horizontal in the way that some of these um real doll adaptations are but again like when you're watching the the action of that story it's made as if it's supposed to be real whereas the entire conceit of this is that everything is very pointedly um, stagey, but in a way that is so elaborate that it's really visually captivating. Yeah, and I and I feel like it's also you know again like a peak of he um, like I think this might be his like most comfort at home of like you have this person who's narrating the story, but also like breaking to engage within the drama um, with this like you know elaborate moving set. It has very much like the 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 costume design the music the 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 staging that he you know it just that's why i say like it's the most wes anderson thing it's just kind of like all of his vices complete all completed into one they're all virtues though not vices in this one i think these all work really well like these are the most i've enjoyed 
Wes Anderson's output since probably Grand Budapest Hotel, which I've liked. I've liked what he's done in the intermediate, like in some cases liked a lot, but like I was captivated by these. I wanted more of them. Yeah, honestly, like um, I probably agree with you. I don't know. Henry Sugar, Henry Sugar's really good, but I've been thinking a lot more of The Swan and Poison. Um, the Swan has like that just gut punch of like the last five minutes. Yeah. And like Richard Freend is really, really good in that one. Uh, I forgot him and him. He's one of the other actors who pops up in the different things. Um, and then you have like. Like it was, it was probably my least favorite, even though I still liked it. But the Ratcatcher has probably one of the closest, you know, like direct horror things you've gotten from Wes Anderson. Like, like the sequence where Ray finds who is the the titular Ratcatcher is like staring at the rat. Like he like has these two cuts between the Richard Fring character and the Ray Fiennes character and the rat. And it's like these, like, um, you know, he's like, got, got it. Like it's shooting the light from the back. So we have these kind of like lit backgrounds. It's all dark. It looks like a, like a hammer horror film or something. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, and you get it like a little bit of gore too. Um, and there's also the ending of that one, which is really unsettling. Um, but um, you said you like poison best poison poison and the swan yeah well i probably like henry sugar the best but i've been thinking about those two a lot since i saw it poison is just so it's the last one um the story of it is benedict cumberbatch is this uh british officer who's uh who thinks that this poisonous snake is on him or says this poisonous snake has like slithered he's like in bed he thinks it's in the sheets yeah and he's like sitting still in bed and then dev patel is like you know who works with him goes and gets the doctor who's played by ben kingsley um and it feels like it feels incredibly Hitchcockian. It's like it's very much like this kind of tense thriller all in this one space. Um, you have all these kind of moving machinations that are all leading. You have that running clock. You know, it feels like a it feels like a, you know, something, you know, like a rear window or, um, you know, points in Psycho where like there's like you can feel like something's about to happen. The clock's kind of running toward some sort of, you know, action happening. Um, and it's just so like, I think the way he stages that and how like the actors work off of each other is really, is really effective. It's just so, it's just such a, such a tightly wound little thriller. Um, that's just very, like very effectively done. Yeah. And that's the one, there's like this interesting thread throughout all of these that I think is like a casualty, not a casualty, but like a result of adapting Roald Dahl's stuff. And like, I mean, it's I, I don't I don't feel like it's any secret that like Roald Dahl is not like a very progressive dude in like the contemporary sense. You know, there's all the like kind of cavalier like colonial stuff in like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for instance, or whatever. But like throughout all these stories, they're all situated within the British Empire, like like noticeably within the British Empire, because a lot of them take place either in India, like occupied by the British or have some sort of element of that um, coming in and out of the story. And the. Poison is the story where, like, by the end, that's, like, kind of the text of it because you have these, like, tension. There's, like, tensions between who is British and who is Indian and are that are kind of, like, subtext until the very end of the, of the story. And it made me kind of reflect over, like, what was going on in the other 
like shorts and I'm not sure if there's like anything profound going on with regards to like that kind of like uh colonizer colonized or imperial subject um dynamic but it's like definitely there in all of the stories and I thought it was interesting you know because I mean Roald Dahl wrote a lot of stories but he picked these four that are all unified under that kind of dynamic which is strange yeah I mean you know thinking about that's the one thing like I've been thinking about like the dynamics of the swan, which is pre- the, the, the swan is the story of um, you have rich, rich uh, Rupert Freens, who is the older version of the ch- kid at the center of the story um, recounting, you know, this, this incident that happened with him where he had these two bullies who were just progressively getting more and more like ruthless in what they were making him do. Um, you know, at times like, uh, you know, with with a gun pointed, a BB gun, but a gun pointed at him, um, and just like the callousness that they kind of like are watching him suffer, um, and like again, like it's kind of like that, you know, uh, colonizer colonized like dynamic of you know, like that one. You just have these two bullies who are just like kind of putting their, you know, putting putting their weight and their strength over this uh, this character who is just kind of helpless, you know, behind two of them and uh, is constantly like pressing down on them, on him throughout the entire story, which I feel like that's kind of how I would see that connecting to the, the, the theory you're posing. Yeah. Whatever the case, these are all on Netflix. I don't know if we said that, but um, I think they're all really worth watching and um, they, they go down real easy. They're, they're all very straightforward. They're, they're like, really visually stimulating. They're all under an hour. Most of them are under 30 minutes with the exception of Henry sugar. Um, Yeah. It's like, if you watch them all in succession, it's about an hour and a half. You know, I wish that like, there's a few streaming services that will highlight short films like criterion or movie or something like that. But for the most part, that's like an untapped thing that like the, the mainstream streaming services don't do like Netflix or um, Hulu or, or people like that. But, you know, because for instance, you were talking about the before we started watch or recording, like Amovadar has like new short films or whatever. And I, you know, you hear about new short films, and a lot of times they're kind of buried on like Vimeo or you have to like, you know, digitally rent them or something like that. And I, I wish that in the litany of things that I wish that Netflix and its like would do differently, I wish that one of the things they did differently was just have like short films by like, you know, interesting directors on there, you know, and it honestly like feels like watching a little, little tiny mini series. Like you're like, Oh, what's going to be the next story? What's going to be the next story? And you kind of like, once you've watched a couple of them, you're like, Oh, I kind of know what this is going to be like, but I'm interested to see like what new permutation this is, you know, what's going to happen next. And I don't know, they won't do this, I'm sure, but it would be interesting just to say like, Hey, Paul Thomas Anderson, would you like to make four short films that we could release in sequ- in sequence on yeah, Netflix? Yeah. Like, I wish that would happen more. The the Almodovar, they had the two shorts, and then he did this Q and A, and it was he gave a really interesting answer about like why he chose to do like short films. One, he said that you know, he he writes he like writes a bunch of stuff, and sometimes it's just like 
it's not enough for a full movie. Like, I, I guess he came out with a series of like short stories at one point, but he like writes a bunch of stuff and he was just like, yeah, some of it, sometimes I'll work it into a movie, but then sometimes he's like, yeah, this is just kind of what it is. And I, I leave and forget it. And that's the, was, that was the case with strange way of life. The Ethan Hawke, Pedro Pascal one. Um, and he was like, he, he said he was in some sort of like panel discussion and people were talking about making series and he was like, no, I just want to make like a short film. And like, I feel like that's probably the issue you run into is like a short film. There's no, like he went into detail in the Q and a about like probably what these characters, like what would happen after this film ended and like how the story of these characters would continue for a little bit. And you can make like a 90 minute movie out of that probably. But he was like, I don't know, like this works, this works as it is. And I feel like that wouldn't be satisfactory to people. Like they, you know, you know, even, even we're saying like we could take more of this Wes Anderson. Like if he like told more of this, that'd be great. But like, no, they just kind of work in that small little, small little package. Yeah. So all of our our, uh, listeners who are Netflix executives take notes. Please make some short films. Um, all right, I'm going to toss it over to you. Uh, you saw another new release, and it's the movie of the weekend. You're talking about me, the creator? I'm you. It's not yeah. my movie. My movie's not new. So. Yeah, I guess I'm the only one who's seen new movies. But yeah, I saw The Creator, which is like a new science fiction movie directed by, and also co-written by Gareth Edwards, who did like Rogue One and the, that Godzilla movie with Brian Cranston in it. Um, did, he not, did he not direct it too? Yeah, he directed it. Sorry, uh, if I didn't say that at the beginning. Uh, okay, but it is okay. directed by and also co-written by Got it. Gareth Edwards. Um, and um, basically the plot of this movie is that in the near future, um, AI gains sentience. Um, it's kind of like an alternate universe, actually, because you open with like this newsreel that's showing like in the 1950s, like these kind of home robots, like Jetsons looking stuff. And then um, these like all culminate up to... Um, an AI like basically ordering a nuclear strike on uh, Los Angeles and killing a million people. So like uh, the governments of the world or really the governments of the West, uh, as we come to learn um, all outlaw AI uh, because they view it as like an existential threat to humanity. And like, they are like hunting down AI um, like the existing AI so that this will never happen again. Um, and they're also use, like the governments are also using it as pretext to like invade other countries. So like um, there's like I don't remember the generic East Asian fake country that they come up with, but it's something like the New Asian Republic or something, aka China, um, is like revealed to like allegedly be harboring like artificial intelligence, so the U.S. military can like invade. You know, they use that as you know justification to invade, um, and. So, like, that's kind of, like, all in, like, the first five minutes. And uh, what the movie ends up being about is, like, with that as a backdrop, um, we're given this, like, introduction of um, this guy, John David Washington. He's played by John David Washington. And he is, like, a... Um, he is, a, uh, like, an undercover, like, military guy in this, like, generic Asian country. And he's trying to find this guy who's been designing these AI, um, allegedly and, uh, who, and he's being harbored by, um, this, this country. And while he's undercover, again, this is all in like the first five minutes of the movie <laughs> while he's undercover, uh, he falls in love with this woman. Um, and then 
kind of makes a life with her. Um, but then the U.S. military invades and does like a bomb strike the um, on this area and his wife that he's fallen in love with and married subsequently um, and their child like die in this bomb strike. And then he's taken back to the United States um, where he like, you know, they're trying to like harvest information from him. Um, and then the, the real movie kicks off like this is maybe 10 minutes of the movie. That's like over two hours. Uh, the real movie kicks off when the U S government is like, we found the guy, um, that we've been looking for, but we need your help because you know, the terrain. And at first he's resistant. He's like, I'm not going back there. He's very like, no, you fuck you guys. You blew up my wife and all that. But then they get him back in because they found footage of his wife allegedly still alive. Um, and he's like, what? She's alive. And so he's got to go back and find her. And he's doing that through the guise of this, like, almost like Apocalypse Now type, like, we're going to invade this country that we've already kind of been at war with already, like, in this illegitimate way. Um, and uh, so then that the movie is like him, like, going into this country, like, looking for his wife while the rest of his men, like, are or his com- colleagues are, like, you know, killing Asians wantonly and killing robots um, you know, in this very like genocidal way. Um, and, uh, he eventually like hooks up with, um, this little like baby robot kid, um, who is like, a um, like a new model of robot and allegedly going to be like some big important thing in this AI versus human war. Um, and it becomes like a lone wolf and cub kind of thing for a little while. Um, and then it goes back to like apocalypse now mode and they're going to like, you know, execute people, they find, um, you know, new information out about this kid and he finds new information about his wife and who's been designing these AI. And it kind of goes from there. Um, and so that's, there's like a lot of plot in this movie, as you can tell. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm already kind of lost. I mean, I kind of get it, but also it was a lot. Yeah. I was kind of doing that on purpose just to say that like this movie is heavy with incident. Um, and it is changing speeds like every five minutes and it kind of is not good um it like a lot of gareth edwards movies it looks really cool like the um the special effects are honestly very good and it's the kind of movie that's not really trying to be like really flashy special effects driven like it's all kind of mundane stuff like the way that the robots are just walking around and these robots are like a lot of them at least are obviously cgi or have cgi elements like a lot of them are humans with like like cyborg looking features um, and it all looks really good and really convincing. Um, there's like some like Blade Runner type stuff going on. Um, there's like, uh, you know, I mean, it wears its influences on his sleeve, but as far as like how it looks, it's really good. But it like, this movie just falls apart on a screenplay play level. And, um, there's too much going on and what's there doesn't really work. It like tries to have these emotional stakes, but because it's really rushed through everything to fit everything in, nothing is like developed enough to, to make you actually buy into it. Um, you have like these scenes where like, there's all sorts of battle scenes and this happens multiple times in the movie where at the beginning of the battle, you get this person who gets like a line. It's the first time you've met this movie. They say some sort of quips like, you know, uh, you know, back at home, I was, you know, I, I used to like to race derby cars and, you know, he makes some sort of quip about that. And then 10 minutes into this battle scene, that guy dies 
and it's all supposed to be emotional or whatever, but you only got this one line about how you race derby cars in the United States. And so there's nothing that actually makes you feel like that uh, sense of loss. And this goes like throughout, like, you know, uh, John David Washington's motivating factor, like I got to find my wife and like all this, you know, dead wife tropey stuff. Like we only see that his interaction with her, like, like two minutes at the beginning of the movie. And that's like the driving thing for him the whole time. And it's like, I'm not sure like why, I mean, I know conceptually why he cares about it, but like, I don't feel it. And I don't really understand it beyond the trope that it is. And so like, that's kind of stupid. And then also the movie itself is just really dumb. Like it's trying to be this like kind of epic, like hard sci-fi sort of Battlestar Galactica meets Blade Runner type thing. And it just doesn't, it seemingly hasn't thought through a lot of these stuff, uh, these things like about its world. Like there's a scene in which, and I said this on Letterboxd too, because this is like the most egregious egregious example, but um, there's a scene where these robots get blown up and then you kind of see it's like this comedic beat where like, because they're robots, their little torsos can still walk around even though there's nothing connected to them and all that. But then later on in the movie, you're supposed to take these seriously as, um, like sentient beings and there's like this whole like you know ethical thing going on here about like robot liberation and stuff um and you see robots like get shot once in the head or in the chest or whatever and then they're dead they're dead and it's hard to understand why some robots can walk around with missing limbs and stuff because they're robots and then other robots just die like people there's another scene in which someone chokes a robot to death which makes no sense um Anyway, so it kind of falls apart on every single written level possible, which is too bad because I want to like this movie. You know, it's an original sci-fi movie. It's got the good special effects. It's got kind of interesting philosophical questions that would be cool to explore. Um, it, it hates the U.S. military. Like, it's great. Like, uh, you know, like you see vehicles with U.S. Army, like, pasted on the side of them, and they're, like, blowing up kids and stuff. And it's like, okay... This is a movie that is like actually for once taking seriously the fact that like, you know, the U.S. military is genocidal, but it's not a good movie, which is just, just too bad. It's just tough to like have an A.I. movie in a world where A.I. artificial intelligence has already come out. That's true, too. You There's know? also a, a child A.I. in that movie that is much more convincingly done. So Spielberg beat Gareth Edwards to the punch when Gareth Edwards is probably like a uh, teenager or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, the creator, it's in, it's in theaters now, I guess, you know, if you're going to see it at all, like if that sounds at all interesting to you, a theater is where to see it because I can just imagine this turning to mush at home in the theater. At least you got the cool sounds and sights. That's true. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take us home with uh, a movie I caught last week. And that is North Dallas 40, which is based off of the book of the same name, which is a um, kind of historical fiction, fictional account of uh, the Dallas Cowboys football team from the 70s, um, written by Peter Gint, who also was a co-writer on the screenplay for this. Uh, But North Dallas 40, it follows uh, the it's the Peter it's the Peter Gint character, but uh, his name's Philip Elliott, uh, and the movie's played by Nick Nolte. Um, he is a wide receiver, uh, pretty talented, but uh, you know is seen as kind of a um, as an outsider, malcontent 
by the uh, the head coach of the of the football team. Um, he's best friends with Seth Maxwell, who is the star quarterback, who's played by Mac Davis in this. You've got like some great like casting choices for just like asshole uh, assistant coaches. You have uh, Charles Durning, who just always is like ready to pick a fight, you know, just be an asshole and pick a fight with people. It plays one of the assistant coaches. Uh, Dabney Coleman shows up as like the son of the owner and is just like a little shit. Like, excellent casting choices for this movie. Um, I mean, if you're depicting the Dallas Cowboys management, you got to go that route. Yeah, like it was great. <laughs> um, but I just finished the book. The book's fantastic. It's really, it's structured over the course of like a week. Um, and the, I was curious to see how the movie was going to handle it because it's very, it's very in the Philip Elliott character's head. It's a lot of him kind of just talking through like his interpretation of just, you know, random things, interactions with people, like how he sees the locker room, how he sees the owners. And it's, you know, incredibly critical of, and that's what, that's, what's kind of interesting about it. It gets, it gets into a lot of like labor and race and, just the just the the physical toll of football not just in the 70s but just in general and kind of how you have this hierarchical um structure of the dallas cowboys um the movie doesn't you know it doesn't it's it's unable to like sit there and just like really be in his mind uh honestly the the movie saved a lot by nick nolte who um really is just able to kind of portray this like kind of half you know, half, half ass, you know, I'm just kind of here. I'm kind of here just to have fun type, uh, personality. Um, honestly, probably the only way you really want to be playing football. Um, and so a lot of that stuff, you know, after reading the book, a lot of that stuff is kind of, is a little bit, is a little bit half baked. There's not too much to it. Um, you really don't get like into a lot of like, you get into the labor dynamics a little bit, but you really don't get a lot into like the race dynamics, which are really interesting in the book. Um, but you do kind of get this, you know, it paints this this very unflattering picture of football. Um, I the it's really probably the like most horrifying scene is like at the end of the movie. You have a number of horrifying scenes, like kind of just like you just have these personalities. I mean, at one point there's one of the offensive linemen who's just like lifting this woman over his head at like a party, just as she's like screaming, he's just like, and he's carrying her places. Um, but at the end of the movie, like they're playing this game against, I think Seattle and it, it kind of stops moving for the most part and just follows them as they like prep for the game. And you just see them like hopping themselves up on drugs getting shots and stuff in order to perform like there's this kind of whole scene between um the one right wide receiver who's black um and the philip elliott character uh, philip is like sitting there getting shot up um by the trainer to like you know be able to to get some get some feeling back in his legs so that he's able to perform in the game and the and the other running the other wide receivers like you know man like my knee hurts or whatever, I, you know, but I don't want to. I don't want to mess with the needles. Like I don't want to mess with that stuff because it just like numbs your your knees and you won't be able to like feel or like be able to do what you want to be doing on the field. Um, and you know, naturally, like Philip does it, and then the Charles Durning character kind of goes in there and like guilt trips him and is like, you know, if you want to like have your worth here, you need to be able to perform on the field. Um, but you just have like this whole psych up as they like are getting ready for the game and 
it's just a lot of like sweating and like teeth gnawing and like hitting stuff and it's just like it just you know it just feels like you like these like mythological creatures that are like trying to like burst out of this out of this uh like cage and like attack um and you really don't watch too much like they don't show a lot of the football game it's not like any given sunday where you're getting like prolonged uh game sequences or anything it just kind of shows you like the lead up and then the games play and they lose and like just the 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 needing to like point like they just have this hostility and energy still and they're needing to point it somewhere um and you know that that just creates this like uh, incredible tension at the very end as, as one of the players just like blowing up on a coach. Um, and, and so while it doesn't really capture like that interiority and, and a lot of the stuff that made the book really special, um, it's really able to kind of capture like that, just that unbridled scary intensity. Um, and especially like with this sport where like you kind of, and, and that's, you know, that's what kind of Philip's character gets into a lot is like, you, you have to have like this, beast-like you know mentality to just like want to like hurt someone in order to like perform the sport and he doesn't have that which kind of you know puts him at a disadvantage even though he's really good at catching you know catching the football um and it's kind of the thing that's like kind of what's pushing and pulling between him and and being able to like move his career along is just that inability to fully like commit to what you have to become to like play football um but it's I, I think the movie's pretty good. I think the movie, like for what it is, it captures a lot of that. You get a lot of just great sequences between like the head coach and the owner and, and Philip's character. Um and like I said, a lot of that labor stuff is in that kind of tension between um you know, uh uh you know, foreman and an employee is uh is pretty strong in this and is it is much more like open about like the crookedness of it than you see in a lot of other, you know, this isn't, this isn't a uh, draft day with Kevin Costner. <laughs> it's, it's more, it's more close to like high flying bird by Steven Soderbergh, something like that. Um, I don't know. It's like, it's, I think it's a sports movie that kind of gets lost, but is, uh, would fit very much into that, 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 uh, in that labor and basketball series that we did recently, even though it's about football. So North Dallas 40, it's on, uh, it's on Pluto TV. Should you be into it? And that's the one that's just ads, right? You're not, you don't have to subscribe. Yeah, there's just ads. Yeah. So like, it, but they're like weirdly cut. So you're just like in the middle of a like dialogue, and then it just cuts away, and it's like Neutrogena. <laughs> oh yeah, I was um, I was show. This is irrelevant. Um, so I'm I'll make this quick. But I was showing a uh, trying to show a movie clip to my students, and the only way that I could find this movie in a short amount of time was on Pluto TV. So I showed the clip, and in the middle of the clip, um, it was like an ad for uh, condoms. <laughs> and so it was just kind of awkward with the students. But anyway, Pluto's good. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, but yeah, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be talking about the limits of the human body in 1986's The Fly after this.
And we're back with part two of episode 459 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our David Cronenberg series with 1986's The Fly. Uh, directed by David Cronenberg, uh, from a script by Cronenberg and Charles Edward Pogue. The film stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz. When scientist Seth Brundle completes his teleportation device, he decides to test its abilities on himself. Unbeknownst to him, a housefly slips in during the process, leading to a merger of man and insect. Initially, Brundle appears to have undergone a successful teleportation, but the fly's cells begin to take over his body. As he becomes increasingly uh, fly-like, Brundle's girlfriend is horrified as the person she once loved deteriorates into a monster. It becomes br- the Brundle fly. Yeah, the Brundle fly. <laughs> uh, according to a 1986 Hollywood Reporter news item, a quote reconceptualization of the 1958 version of the fly started pre-production in England during January 1985 with Robert Bierman directing. After a family tragedy that forced Bierman to leave the project, uh, David Cronenberg was hired to direct the film. And in an August 1986 interview with LA Weekly, Cronenberg reported that he rewrote most of Pogue's original script, but, quote, almost 100% of the film's depiction of character Seth Brundle's metamorphosis from a human into a fly was consistent with Pogue's screenplay. Cronenberg uh, also also noted that his changes included removing campy aspects retained from the original film and a cameo with actor Vincent Price. Uh, what? Yeah, Seth took out Vince. Yeah, he got he, Vince. You're cut. Sorry. Uh, Seth's line, "Please help me," which was used in advertising campaigns and became popularly associated with the film, was retained from the 1958 picture. Uh, Pogue told Rolling Stone in 1986 that he pitched his idea for a remake of The Fly to producer Stuart Kornfeld in 1984. Although 20th Century Fox owned the rights to The Fly, the studio opted against financing a remake after reading Pogue's script. According to Kornfeld, Feld, yeah, Kornfeld. The studio did not take, did not think a picture quote where the protagonist becomes the antagonist would be marketable. After Kornfeld stole the script to director Mel Brooks's production company Brooks Films, which had previously financed body horror, horror films such as The Elephant Man in 1980, Brooks was eager to recruit Cronenberg. Brooks wanted Pierce Brosnan to play the role of Seth Brundle, but Cronenberg rejected the casting. John Malkovich was the top choice for the role, but he declined. John Lithgow was also offered the role, but turned it down, stating it was too grotesque. Michael Keaton and Richard Dreyfuss were also considered. Uh, and Jeff Goldblum was pro- was proposed for the lead by Cronenberg, as Goldblum was willing to perform the prosthetic makeup, unlike other proposed actors like Dreyfuss. Although Goldblum was romantically involved with Gina Davis at the time, he did not suggest her as his leading lady, according to Rolling Stone, and Cronenberg pursued her for the role of Veronica on her own, or on his own. Rolling Stone predicted the fly's popularity would be difficult to maintain because potential audiences were turned off by reports of the viscera and gore, or viscera and gore. Um, Cronenberg told Rolling Stone that he intended for audiences to, quote, watch the unwatchable and base the final scenes of Seth's uh, decomposition on the death of his own father, who had suffered from bone disease. Cronenberg stated that he used the horror genre not to provide an escape from reality, but rather to convey an, quote, ultra-ultra reality that forced viewers to reevaluate their perceptions of normality. 
However, the Washington Post noted two scenes that were edited from the film by Cronenberg because they were deemed, quote, too disturbing, although the director vowed to include them in the video release. One scene, which depicts Seth attempting to bite off the leg of a fly after it protrudes from his skin, caused a woman to faint at a preview screening. The second edited sequence showed a two-headed creature, part baboon, part cat, that attacks itself and Seth at the same time. Um, in Wait, where does that creature come from? I guess he just put him in the thing. Yeah. Um, New York Times in 1986. In David Cronenberg's new version, Jeff Goldblum is a graphic fly for the fra- fact-crazed 80s, transformed into a creature so repulsive he makes the monster and aliens look like grandma in a Norman Rockwell painting. This all-out flaunted goriness becomes distracting and it destroys the fly, which is too bad because Mr. Goldblum's fly man has heart and humor and Mr. Cronenberg's vision is ambitious. And the LA Times in 1986 said, What makes The Fly such a stunning piece of obsessive filmmaking is the way Cronenberg deftly allows us to identify with his monstrous creation. Unlike so many modern horror, horror film creations, Brundle is neither a brutal demon nor a hideous apparition from another sphere. He's more reminiscent of the hulking, hulking marvels of our movie childhood. He has the dreamy, transfixi- transfixing innocence of a King Kong or a Frank- Frankenstein's monster. In fact, the more striking his physical metamorphosis, the more touchingly human he seems in spirit it's hard not to hear the echo of kafka in uh brundle's most sorrowful uh, lament i'm an insect who dreamed he was a man and the dream is over on that note let's talk about the fly and uh yeah it's pretty gross that's my review Uh, on a first time watch yeah first timer here uh yuck um (laughs) Yuck. Um, uh, putrid. Uh, this is what I uh, thought I would be getting from a Cronenberg um, as a Cronenberg novice, a newbie, a newcomer. Um, we were so used to, uh, you know, the, the, the stinging vaginas yeah. out of the armpits. We were like, oh, this is fine. Like, that's about as insecty, insectal, <laughs> insectile as we get, that sort of stinger. Uh, I was watching this and I was like, getting a lot of rabid vibes um as someone who's only seen one other <laughs> Cronenberg like huh this feels like his other one it, it didn't um but when they when they start to talk about how like perhaps this is a disease that's that's catching then it was like oh there's you know the threat of that um, rabid vibes rabid vibes um this yeah beyond being like putrid and gross um this uh it's a very interesting, um, I, I don't know if I would call it so sci-fi as I would horror. Like I, I watched the, uh, original fly just to get sort of an idea of what I'd be looking at. Um, little did I know, um, how different they would be and how uniquely different they are. Um, there's definitely, um, more of a scientific approach to the original fly, which I enjoyed, um, a little bit more than, um, this sort of like fusion of um the the sort of like computer more computer sciencey did you guys kind of get that feel like um very advanced computers yeah like he can like speak questions it's like chat gpt running his his uh transporter yeah um but i i um 
Gina Davis was a standout in this for me. I thought that she was just phenomenal. I adore her and everything that she's in, but this was, um, she was very powerful for me as Veronica and she bears the unique, um, burden of, um, creation, like real creation of life, um, as she falls pregnant with Brundlefly's offspring, um, so that so 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 she she was really like the standout for me but um this was great all around um I couldn't look away I didn't look away and I didn't throw up I didn't throw up acidic bile um so you know I call that a Grace, win how did you eat your food if you're not going to use your bile to turn it into a paste that you can slurp up I'm on a well it's a liquid diet you got me there um I, I will say I was gonna like have some like ice cream after I finished this movie and then the movie ended and I was like nah I'm good um, slurp it up mm. yeah uh, no it's I mean I, I feel like it kind of probably gets that reputation of it's gross and it is pretty gross a lot um, but it's also really good it's also really like it's uh like Jeff Goldblum is is like perfectly you know I seeing like some of those other names like I could kind of see it but like Goldblum like has that kind of weird stringiness to him, to him that like works for this character where like yeah he's kind of attractive but he also is like kind of weird and out there at the same time and like I don't think anybody else could have pulled off like going you can eh, call me a Brundlefly you know like in a very like normal like imagine imagine John Malkovich or Pierce Brosnan or oh or gosh. Richard Dreyfus calling themselves Brundlefly like that wouldn't have worked. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan too suave, um, too sophisticated. There's definitely like a, this aloof air that uh, Goldblum brings. Also, he's got really big bug eyes. Like his eyes are huge in this, yeah, just staring he's at you. Halfway yeah. when the movie starts. Yeah. Um, Michael, when was the last time that you had watched this? It had been probably 10 years. Um, I remember the first time, so this is my second time watching it. I remember the first time I was like Grace, where I had watched the original. And I remember liking the original more. Um, the original has that kind of horrific ending. Um, yeah. Where he's like, help me. Help me, help me. <laughs> that was so sad and pathetic. And yeah, yeah. Ooh. it was very horrifying. And I remember thinking, I don't know why I thought this, but um, when I watched it, the first time the 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 Cronenberg remake I remember thinking that like there's like a um what I liked about the original was kind of like the, the almost domestic tragedy that it is um and for whatever reason when I watched it the first time I guess I was distracted by the effects and the prosthetics and stuff but I felt like it didn't capture that tragic element of the original and I think that I was wrong because watching it this time like rewatching it, that was like the only thing I could think of. Like the, just the the way that this shows like a person, like a significant other of a person having to nurse someone through an, through a terminal illness, um, which in this case is him turning into a fly, which I don't know how relatable that is. But like as a general principle, like this idea of a disease turns someone into something that like you don't know. And there's like moments of lucidity and then there's also moments where he's just gone and it kind of goes back and forth between that. Um, it, I don't know. I found it really like affecting this movie kind of fucked me up this time and not because of the grossness, but it was just like upsetting. Like 
I, I agree that Gina Davis is like great in this. And like one of the things that Gina Davis does is she plays this like someone who is truly in love with him. And like as if this is it is weird what is happening to him in the sense of like he's turning into a fly. But the way that she plays it, she is horrified that he's turning into a fly, but it's not that different than how she might have played someone who was you know, I don't know, like suffering from like really early onset dementia or someone who um, was suffering from like a disease like David Cronenberg was talking about his dad suffering from like there's there's a real uh, lived in quality to like what she does with him. And I don't know, I, I found it really, really moving and just awful and grim <laughs> because, you know, it's. When when someone is terminally ill, there's not there's not a happy there's not a happy end to that really. Um and at the end she euthanizes him, you know? Like that's that's just kinda awful. Um and I, f- I mean it's really extremely well done, but I was like upset at the end of this viewing and I didn't remember being that way the first time. Yeah, definitely like plays with, you know, our definition of humane humanity. Um the morality and the ethics surrounding like what is and what isn't like a mercy um in the original because I had just I had just finished the original today and then immediately watched the remake so this is all very fresh um but at the very end in the original it's the police inspector that picks up the big rock and crushes both the spider and the fly um and he says you know god is my witness I'll, I'll never forget the sound of, you know, the help me, the plead. Um, it was all I could do to silence that, to end everyone's suffering. So she, then Gina Davis does it. And I didn't even really pick up on that until you mentioned that, but I do see the line of reasoning with like dementia, like the mind going, um, very sad. She, Gina Davis sees him in these, you know, putrid, disgusting states and still, sees Seth, the man she loves, behind it all, through it all. And is also dealing with her skeevy boss. Oh my gosh, yeah. That guy's awful. Yeah. I was just gonna say he gets you know, he gets his 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 hand and leg vomited and disintegrated. And I'm like, he kinda deserved that. <laughs> A yeah, bit. there there seemed to be some sort of like um, compassion from him like when he takes her for the abortion um, but no still not very redeemable um, he's frightened by the monster and can't see past it and he had always been jealous of Seth's relationship to Veronica so like him bringing the gun there seemed motivated in different ways maybe a little selfishly um, whereas Gina's mo- or Veronica's motivation for using the gun was like you know, much more um, compassionate. Yeah, it was real uh, Wesley Snipes like tear with the gun kind of pointed. That you know that was much more in that realm. Um, yeah, you talked a little bit about the 1958 version. I'm curious, like the because the main character is is played by Vincent Price. Um, like how do they? What, um, you know, Michael, you said the, the first time you kind of leaned toward that one more. What, what about that one kind of different, you know, is different from this, this Cronenberg version? 
I, I'm going to defer to Grace on this because it's been so long. I don't remember enough detail. Okay. Uh, well, for me, it was that um, in the original, um, our fly uh, is Andre, and he's he felt he's a real scientist. I, there, there was I don't know if y'all caught that or like you know when. Um, Seth and Veronica are back at his apartment and he says, oh, you know, I just I put the pieces together. Um, he seemed more like a, a guy that like sources his science and then combines it. Um, he says, you know, I asked them to make me a this or make me a that. Um, in the original fly, he is uh, the scientist, the scientific mind that writes the formula that creates these uh, the artifacts, not artifacts, um, apparatuses apparatusi apparatuses to 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 create or to um make teleportation happen it's it's his mind so then um those moments where he's like battling the fly and 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 um those moments of lucidity i see the the dementia there um where um he's fighting against this thing that's taking over him um that appealed to me um it felt like he had more of a grip on the scientific aspect of it and suffers greatly because of it, because it's, it's his own mind. It's his own, um, invention that, um, he then suffers the consequences of his, him, him playing God. He, he suffers for it. Um, whereas in this one, the fly, he, it felt like he just put a puzzle together. Like he had all the pieces, he put the puzzle together and, then suffers because of that and i um when we meet seth i am not so um i'm charmed by him but not in the same way as i feel maybe veronica was i kind of found him to be kind of a sniveling out of touch you know under socialized genius and it took her to soften those edges to teach him about human compassion or human connection um to you know what what is our flesh and and what what we can actually feel between you know two people um so it, it felt like um she sort of taught him tenderness and humanity that he didn't have that he then develops further the the grosser his outsides become the more human maybe his insides um but but that worked for me, or, or that was what like really um, worked for me with the original. This is science fiction. This is horror um, to to differentiate the two. So, I think with the new one, with the the Cronenberg one, the the fact that they can sell their relationship is entirely on Gina Davis's shoulders. Like I think Jeff Goldblum's really good at being the kind of like like eccentric guy that he is in this movie but in terms of like the emotional fidelity of like what they're supposed to be i think is gina davis doing it like 100 percent. like i mentioned earlier she's the one playing it like it's real whereas goldblum's really good in this but he's always a little bit like you know just uh, he's even before he's like fly man. He he's just like a few clicks off just because he's supposed to be eccentric and stuff. And there's kind of this weird. Their their first meeting is really strange where he's trying to get her to sleep with him, and so he takes her back to his 
lab where he's got the teleportation stuff but she's a journalist which also is just a big red flag like if you showed up at where he lives like which is just like a warehouse room with some teleportation (laughs) devices in it yeah like girl come on (laughs) yeah there's like huge red flags everywhere and he doesn't he does get more compassionate but he also goes through some weird stuff too like when he's first turning into a fly he's just voraciously horny and she like leaves him uh, because he's being really awful to her and because they've been like having sex for hours allegedly uh, and she, he's like well, I'm gonna go find sex somewhere else and he goes and like p- like breaks this dude's arm in arm wrestling and then walks off with the dude's girlfriend and like I don't know like I know that some of that is the fly part of him but I think that there's like enough in the movie to show that like that's like a part of his personality that's there to begin with because he's like this weird like horny dude at the beginning of the movie who doesn't really know how to like engage with people and the fly before it begins like grotesquely mutilating his body like just gives him strength and energy and he doesn't really use that very nicely either um so i mean the fact that like by the end of the movie it's sad that we have to euthanize him i i do think like is gina davis playing it really well although like jeff goldblum does get some really great lines like um when he first kind of realizes what's happening to him uh, and before kind of like the fly persona takes over, like there's this moment where he just goes, I'm scared, you know, and it's like a really tender and sad moment. And again, like knowing that Cronenberg had this like disease metaphor going on, like I can imagine getting some sort of diagnosis where you know that horrible things are going to happen to you in the future and that being really scary. And like looking into the future and seeing that like just suffering i you know i can't i can't really imagine what that's like you know and it must it must be awful and um in a way it's kind of silly to compare it to like as dude turning into a fly but um it works in this movie for me i guess it's all the the whole sequence when he has like started to like feel the effects of the fly and he's like for all intents and purposes, like getting superpowers. Um, it's such a, it's such a weird, it's, it's such a kind of His interesting, gymnast. like I was thinking a lot about nothing, none of like the recent superhero stuff. Cause that's all boring. Um, but more like, like Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, like just like the, Spider-Man. You know, just like the body yeah, war a, of like Peter, like slowly <laughs> discovering his Spider-Man powers in the first movie, um, really getting a lot of that, a lot of, you know, I can see Raimi kind of feeling a lot of this movie between, you know, Spider-Man and uh, just like the fly when he's uh, like doing like the push-ups and like lifting on the wall and like she's starting to f- like find that he has these like, you know, inhuman abilities um, I don't know if how, how how y'all thought during those sequences. Um, interesting transformation. Um, watching him undergo that, I'm sure there's maybe like something to do there with gender and transformation there. Um, but it 
it, it was it was cool to watch. I mean, I wonder did Jeff Goldblum do all of those spins and flips, and did he do the Olympic training because that was great? And then to like watch uh, Gina watch Ronnie, she's 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 like this is very attractive. This is like what a unique um, side effect of this. Um, but I'm pretty sure they go and have sex afterwards. She like, she, like uh, watched, yeah. she watches them yeah. do like a couple loops and like run on the ceiling and stuff, yeah. and then like leap down. She's like, "All right, let's go." Something primal, animalistic, or you know, and and that and you know, that's that's interesting. <laughs> that's unique. Uh, yeah, I think I was I was doing a lot of research, and you know, in the research they bring up like the production and like the costume design, like just all that kind of the prosthetic work, all this kind of stuff. Um, probably the, the gross, the biggest gross out really that I had in the entire movie was when, um, you know, Gina Davis is like pushing away from him and like the bottom half of his mouth falls off. Yeah. That's when I was just like, oh, oh my gosh. His jaw and it's still falls like off. moving. God. Yeah. As, and then the, like and the, they cut, they pan down to it. And, and then the like rest of him starts falling off. Like, oh. And that's really when it just goes. Um, I, yeah. but I just, j- just in general, like, you know, Michael, I, mean, yeah. I know you mentioned like, just like the, the effects, special effects and all the stuff before just like the, the prosthetic work and those types of special effects and all that, like, it's still incredibly effective. Cause it's not like, it doesn't look, you don't have like that, you know, realism that you could get now, but there's something honestly worse about like the, like tangible just like rip and like goo and shit of like when stuff is falling off of him like like when his teeth were falling out and like the the fingernails oh yeah and he's got the all the stuff Ooh, in the jars yeah it's just like like just all of that stuff like just even even today like top 10 you know just like like 10 out of 10 work when it comes to the prosthetics because like everyone like like that just that glue looking adhesive stuff that would just fall off also just was like it was nasty it was gross yeah and even i mean when we're talking about realism I, it does kind of beg the question like what do we mean by realism because like his body is literally like rotting and falling off and i can't imagine actually it being more realistic to have like a cgi you know, whatever, because I mean, his, his outer skin is becoming lifeless and rubbery just by, by category of what's happening to him. Like, I think it's like extremely convincing a lot of the effects too. I mean, when you see the actual fly face, that is obviously like a, 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 you know, animatronic or, you know, I I don't know what's behind that, but like the actual like flesh falling off, like I don't know. I've never seen flesh rot and fall off of somebody, but it can't look that much different yeah. than what we see. It's very disturbing in that because you, yeah, you, you don't really. I don't know. Not many people probably have seen that, and you're just like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like just the flesh falling off the body. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Even just the arm wrestling, like yeah. it makes you never want to arm wrestle ever again to see that arm snap. That was like a nice little foreshadow of what's to come: the bones breaking, the the limits of the flesh. Uh, you know. Ugh. I, I, we got a taste. I love to use that word in context here. We got a taste for the flesh um, when the uh, teleportation experiment goes wrong with the baboon. That was oh, and it like turns inside out. Putrid. That was. Oh I mean, gosh. horrendous. The ugh, the suffering. I mean, I, I wonder how 
I mean, they had to put that down too, humanely, right? Like, are you, are you, like, I don't know. What did they do with that? Is it embalmed in a vial somewhere? In, 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 or a jar? It's in, in Brundlefly's yeah, like, Natural History Museum or whatever the hell he calls it. Um, the other thing, the other, like, production thing I wanted to mention was the scores done by Howard Shore, who, um, he did are, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, people are probably most familiar. He did the scores for the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, and it really does have like this kind of sweeping sweeping score to it that at times like it really plays up like I think the romantic like aspects of it, but also just feels like very like enchant like Hollywood enchanting at times when you like it's just kind of disconcerting as like he's you know becoming more and more Brundle fly. Um, the just like that, the whole score involved in the film is really, it kind of just adds this other dimension that I felt like we definitely didn't get in that first Cronenberg um, movie because it's very like lo-fi, seventies uh, horror, like low-tech kind of thing. And this, you kind of have this this whole like sweeping score added to it. It's a little, it adds this element that that I felt to be incredibly effective. I don't know if the the score stood out to y'all. No, yeah, because especially by the end when you know he's he's basically all fly, you have the score is sometimes like scary movie score, but most of it is like the 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 sweeping, like sad music, you know, which I think is you know telegraphing what's supposed to be going on. I remember like watching it this time. I couldn't hum for you the score now, but like for like a couple of hours afterwards, like I was thinking of like in my head, I was like the music was there for um, like when he dies at the end. And it was really memorable in that way. Um, so yeah, good score. It was good. I think I noticed it more when I like didn't hear it. There's or, or uh, noticed it when it was like missing for a split second and that was when she's in the clinic um and she's going to have her abortion and she kind of like breathes this sigh of relief and it's quiet and then boom he crashes through the window that scared the that scared the shit out of me like just the sound of the glass breaking and him full body into the the clinic um to save himself save the last shred of his humanity um very scary that also that felt kind of king kong you know um yeah you're right that yeah. Is, i hadn't thought about that to busting through to like save well even frankenstein also the beauty also. yeah that, uh, very much so she and then there was this like really i mean i don't know if you guys picked up on this maybe this is just like my background my religious upbringing but there was this um you know he plays god but then there's this trinity aspect of um merging the three of them you know me you and the baby um call that a family unit um thank you <laughs> i wonder if it was actually going to be a larva that would be that'd be wild oh that was putrid like what <laughs> a, really talk about a nightmare too. that was very <laughs> visceral for um for me i don't know about you guys but I mean, I would not like to give birth to a larva. Yeah, I don't want to give birth to a monster either. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if I'd want David Cronenberg to be my gynecologist either. I 
don't know. I mean, he's got some he's got some neat ideas, and you know, nothing probably scares him. So, could you take a look at this? Yeah, they were really like taking that in stride yeah. in the dream. They were just like, the "Oh, doctor. this is new." <laughs> um, as we as we kind of wind down, any any final thoughts on the fly? Um. I don't know. I, I it's definitely one for me. It's definitely one to watch because it does, like it you know has that that um, preconception of like it's going to gross you out and like it does. Like we've described, you know, it, it will gross you out. Um, but I feel like this movie also, um, as we talked about, has a lot more a lot more going on. I'm excited to kind of maybe vi- revisit it at some point and watch it again and get that second viewing because um, definitely. Um, you can see that at least from the first movie in the series, like the, what is it? Nine, nine or so years since then. Um, like he's definitely able to like, it's, it's much more full than like rabbit was. Um, and the- yeah. And it's worth pointing out that like some like really notable David Cronenberg movies are released in that gap, like Videodrome, for instance, which I think a lot of people would point to as like his first, like really major, like major major film is like the early 80s is it um there's like another one in there too that's kind of like big scanners is scanners in there with the exploding head um so like it is kind of cool that we're there the way that we structured the series there's we just see that huge jump between you know his like canadian public funded movie to this like a hollywood budget uh, feature because it's really impressive like what he does here i think grace any any final thoughts uh it's evolution in a pod it's um the limits of the flesh in both extremes from the animal and insect to um to to machine like where the teleportation device and um brundle fly merge like is this the next step um it asks a lot of it asks a lot of us and um gives us a lot uh visually to deal with uh this was a very wet and tactile movie um two thumbs up or or uh eight legs and two wings all the way up. Has six legs. Six legs. Okay. See, I don't I know. Think see, six um, legs. But yeah, I put my little antenna up. Um, this. Two antenna up. Two antenna way up. Can't get enough. Yeah, uh, can't wait up. to see <laughs> what's next um, in the series. So. I do think that like Jeff Goldblum's character gets to say it the best when he's really excited about how he can eat, um, and like gets to show her really excitedly like look look what i can do and he like vomits all over the food and then like slurps it up and they're filming it on camera and then we like cut to gina davis's boss watching the footage and he's just so like horrified as excitedly brundlefly is describing like and so kids this is what brundlefly does to eat and you get i i feel like that there's an element of david cronenberg like really taking joy in that um like imagined audience reaction like you have to right you don't you don't make a movie like this and not take some joy out of uh people's responses you gotta have a little fun while you do it you know absolutely um all right well 
Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on, uh, on Twitter and, and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we list, uh, all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, if you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary, uh, to support the show. It could be a dollar, five dollars, just a you know, remember we'll, we'll probably run into a series where we'll need like some Patreon suggestions and that's, that's your time to shine is give a dollar and make us watch Sherlock gnomes, you know, um, next week though we're going to continue our david cronenberg series with 1991's naked lunch which we're bringing back bugs i guess more bugs are there bugs and i'm actually like four-fifths of the way through the book naked lunch and there's a lot of gross things in it i don't remember any bugs yet it says blank-faced bug killer bill lee that's the first part of the of the thing so um, All right. And I see a picture of, of Peter Weller with a bug. There, there it is. All right. So we can't hide. We can't get. We can't get too far away from it. Just bugs and Cronenberg. Um, well, until then, thank you all for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>